you know, when, when you think about Jesus, I'm so amazed when you look through the Scriptures of how many uh, different titles uh, that he had. So he, he was uh, called the Good Shepherd. He was called the Messiah. He was called the Son of God. Uh, the Son of Man. Uh, one of the titles that uh, his uh, disciples had for him was rabbi or teacher. And, and we know as we read through uh, his work uh, through the Gospels that Jesus was just this incredible teacher. And one of the things that he really liked to do is he liked to take sort of uh, everyday ordinary items or circumstances and teach incredible and extraordinary uh, spiritual truth. So, for example, he uh, once pointed to uh, the sky uh, and said, look at the birds of the air and pointed to the field, the flowers of the field, to teach his disciples not to be anxious. And, and if God takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, how much more will God take care of them? Or he took a little child and he welcomed that little child and he taught his disciples about humility and what it means to, to come to God with this just incredible sense of dependence and, and trust. Or uh, one time when he was uh, uh, potentially being trapped by uh, the religious leaders of his day about the relationship between God and government, he took an ordinary coin and he said, you know, uh, take a look at the coin. Give what is Caesar, what is Caesar, and to God, uh, what is God's. Or he uh, took a storm in the middle of a lake to teach his disciples about what it means to, to have courage and to bring uh, their fears to him and to trust in him. Children and birds and flowers and coins and storms, all just ordinary realities but extraordinary lessons. Well, today uh, we're starting a, a little mini-series for the summer called uh, Faith in Life, uh, Extraordinary Lessons from Ordinary Life. And in the coming weeks, we're going to uh, take a look at some of the things that we can learn, for example, from a trip to the beach or from man's best friend, the dog, or a trip down uh, into the city in D.C. And by the way, uh, hear this invitation uh, for you to help us out. So uh, we would love to receive your pictures. And if, if Crystal or Alan, if you'll put in the chat room um, an email where they can send pictures, office at uh, oldtown.cc, I would love to receive your pictures of uh, your dog, uh, maybe of a trip that your family took to the beach, uh, also a trip to D.C. Uh, we'd love to just use your pictures during uh, this series. Today what I'd like for us to do is I would like for us to consider faith lessons from a preschooler. Now, one of the great joys, and, and Jody and I had the privilege of, of raising two uh, preschoolers. They're now young adults. And one of the great joys in kids every week is one of the things that I absolutely miss the most, being able to stop and, and talk with them. And one of the things that uh, light just, just brings joy to my heart is when I'm on a Zoom and all of a sudden somebody will put their kids on the Zoom camera and it just gives lift to the whole uh, experience well, I wish I could have had a conversation with our preschoolers uh, for you this morning. One of the aspects of preschoolers that I absolutely love is their capacity to move to joy and to celebration with the snap of a finger. C.S. Lewis wrote that joy is the serious business of heaven. And I would have to say that joy is the serious business of preschoolers as well. Let's just get something out on the table, though. As we grow older, we have a tendency to lose the capacity for joy. We have what 
I might call JDD or a joy deficit disorder. Uh, let me give you an example. A preschooler could spill some red juice on a white shirt and take delight that she introduced color to a blank canvas. An adult would say that the shirt was ruined. Or a preschooler would dance with delight if he was putting his toys away and then all of a sudden a friend came over uh, and started playing with those toys where an adult would call that an interruption to the workday. A preschooler would see a stack of pots and pans and say there's a good afternoon's worth of joy and merrymaking. We adults might say there's a mess that somebody has to clean up. For sure, we are living in challenging times. Stress for many is off the charts. But I sense the ability to find joy and to find the deeper ways to celebrate is one of the gifts that God will give us, one of the graces of God that will help us navigate this time. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg writes, we will not understand God until we understand that God is the happiest being in the universe. God also knows sorrow. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God is his temporary response to a fallen world. That sorrow will forever be banished from his heart when the world is set right. G.K. Chesterton, the British author, influenced a lot of Ortberg's work and thinking on joy. And he reflected upon the ways that, that preschoolers pr play. So if you've ever uh, had a chance to just uh, have fun with a preschooler and maybe bounce them on your knee or as parents maybe uh, tossing them up in the air and then catching them, um, what a preschooler will almost always, 100% of the time, say is do it again and then do it again and then do it again. And Chesterton says that it is never the child that says stop. It's always the adult that says stop. And he says grown-ups aren't strong enough to take joy in just simple monotony. We get bored and we move on. But God is not like that. Uh, for example, in, in the first two chapters of Genesis, Ortberg reflects that when God created, God said over and over and over, this is good, this is good, this is good. And that if you notice, God just put in a permanent sort of state of do it again. Think about the sun rising and do it again every single day. But what if God had approached creation? What if God had approached creation, uh, the creation of the universe, in the way that we adults approach life? Listen to this reading from Ortberg by our friend Ali Boatwright. Uh, this is the universe as told and being made by a typical adult and how a typical adult approaches the workday. Take a listen. In the beginning, it was 9 o'clock, so God had to go to work. He filled out a requisition form to separate light from darkness. He considered making stars to beautify the night and planets to fill the skies, but thought it sounded like too much work, and besides thought God, that's not my job. So he decided to knock off early and call it a day. And he looked at what he had done and said, it'll have to do. On the second day, God separated the waters from the dry land, and he made the dry land flat, plain, and functional, so that Behold, the whole earth looked like Idaho. He thought about making mountains and valleys and glaciers and jungles and forests, but he decided it wouldn't be worth the effort. 
And God looked at what he had done that day and said, It'll have to do. And God made a pigeon to fly in the air, and a cart to swim in the waters, and a cat to creep upon dry land. And God thought about making a million other species, of all sizes and shapes and colors, but he couldn't drum up any enthusiasm for any other animals. In fact, he wasn't too crazy about the cat. Besides, it was almost time for the late show. So God looked at all he had done, and God said, it'll have to do. And at the end of the week, God was seriously burned out. So he breathed a big sigh of relief and said, thank me, it's Friday. Well, thank you, Allie. And also, you noticed the little cameo by uh, their cat there. Thank God it didn't happen that way. So you may be asking, you know, how can we kind of reflect our preschool friends and move to a place of, of joy rather quickly? How do we find a cure for the joy deficit disorder? Well, the text that Crystal read earlier provides for us just a, a few uh, brief, helpful ideas here. The first one is to live with eternity in mind. In this passage that Crystal read, St. Paul reflected upon his imprisonment and his hardships, and he was awaiting trial, and he was awaiting sentence, and his sentence could have very well been execution. And yet, he is rejoicing, because if he dies, he says he will depart and, and be with Jesus. But if he lives, get this, he says, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and for your joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. In other words, he's saying, I take great joy in this idea that if I die, I will be with Jesus, but if not, I will be with you so that you can continue to grow in your joy of the Lord. Now, this begs the question for a moment. What is the joy of which Paul speaks? How can he be chained up in prison awaiting trial, potentially facing death, and yet so saturated with joy. Well, a definition that, that I've always thought is, is a great definition of the joy of the Lord is simply this. Joy is a deep gladness that in Christ all will be well. Joy is a deep gladness that in Christ all will be well. It's not the same as happiness. Happiness is fleeting and it's circumstantial. But when the Spirit is at work in our lives, the Spirit produces the joy that the angels announced when Jesus was born. It was good news of great, great joy, a deep gladness that all is going to be okay. An eternal perspective allows us to stand in the midst of suffering like many are experiencing right now and still claim the deep gladness and the deep joy of the Lord, a confidence that in Him all will be well with our souls. A friend of mine in Minnesota, when we lived in Minnesota, experienced the most devastating loss. His son Jason was 14 at the time, and Jason started running a fever one day at the end of the week. They called the doctor, and the doctor said, you know, it looks, sounds like the flu, just keep an eye on him. Well, his fever started to spike and went up to 105. They called the doctor again. They said, get him in to the hospital. It was on the weekend. Within 24 hours after Jason was admitted to the hospital, he died of meningitis. 
my friend and I had talks, long talks during this time. And he taught me so much about faith in the midst of suffering. And one day we were sharing a cup of coffee and just talking at Panera Bread in, in Maple Grove, Minnesota. And the Lord just led me to, to grab a napkin and just to scribble uh, this little line that you see on the screen. And a, a, as you can see there, uh, at the left on the line, there's this starting point. And I told my friend, I said, listen, we all have this starting point. And this starting point is when we were born. And then that first line you see moving to the right, I said to him, now, this is when Jason died. And he, he died in, in too short, too soon. And his life was too soon. And I showed him that other little mark. I said, you know, that's when, when my dad died at 27. And he died too soon. And, and then the third mark, I said, you know, hopefully uh, we'll live to be 80, 90, or 100. And, and this is our mark. But then I said to him, you know, you look at that. And we all have a mark on that line. But on the other side of that last mark is the line that extends throughout eternity. And that is where we will be. And because his son was a believer in Jesus, and because he was a believer in Jesus, I told him, I said, listen, one day you will stand with your son in all of eternity. And you'll look back, and you'll be able to say to him, you know, Jason, uh, when you died, that was the most difficult experience in my life. But God carried me through. God carried me through. And I was able to make it. And now look at how we have all eternity together to celebrate our Lord and Savior Jesus, to be in His presence, in the fullness of His presence and joy. You see, that is a joy and that is a deep gladness that comes to us even in the midst of suffering. My friend would write me uh, years later and say, you know, I still think about that moment when we took a look at eternity and how that can help us and help me through it. The next step to dealing with JDD is to embrace being a servant. You know, Paul in Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, Paul is saying here in this famous verse that we will find our joy embedded in our relationship with Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, we find that Jesus describes his relationship in different ways with his disciples. Shepherd and sheep, friends, rabbi, disciple, savior, sinner. Here we have Lord and servant. Christians often use the phrase Lord and Savior. The Savior part is what we find very appealing. We're sinners in need of, a salvation, of salvation. The Lord part is what we struggle with at times. The relationship of Lord and servant in any other context is loaded and burdened. The idea of servanthood to a mere mortal makes us recoil and it makes us think about all those situations past and present when people have been or are being mistreated, marginalized, and oppressed. This reminds us that language of any kind struggles to describe Jesus. Jesus, our Lord, is a good and perfect leader to whom we can pledge full allegiance and duty. He is a trustworthy leader and king over our lives. And his reign in our lives does not 
oppress us. It does not dehumanize us. And it doesn't diminish us in any way. It is actually in service to Him that we find who we are truly meant to be and what we're truly meant to do on this earth. It is in service to Him that we can be truly and fully human, which brings us great purpose and joy. You see, everyone is going to serve somebody or something. You may call work your Lord. You may call money your Lord. You may call success your Lord. Anything other than service to Jesus as Lord is taking away from you and diminishing you. But service to Jesus gives back to you and it fills you. It is completely countercultural when you think about it. The world says, go and live for yourself. Go find the gusto, as the old commercial says. But Jesus says, come serve me and come serve others. And this is how you will truly find life. I see this in the service of uh, our volunteers here at OTCC. I hear it in the voices of our deacons when they report how much joy they had in their phone calls to our senior adults during this pandemic. I, I hear it in the voices and I see it in, in the, the, uh, just the expressions of, of our folks who have volunteered to, to serve through Open Table or through the food distribution. You take the, the food distribution, I don't know, we've, we've given away about 60,000 pounds of food so far. Uh, the first day it was just raining like crazy. The second day it was really, really hot and, 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 and just sweat pouring and the boxes are kind of heavy at times and traffic is whizzing by, people blowing horns. I mean, it's just, it's really, it, it is controlled chaos. I, Brian's our leader in that. He's done a great job. But it's amazing. And you know what? Through it all, our volunteers just have this big grin on their face. They have a big pep in their step. Why? Because they realize the joy of the Lord using them to put food that the Lord has provided on the tables of people who need it. That is joy. It's just unspeakable joy found in service to our King. So we see it when we have eternity in mind. We see it in servanthood and we see joy. The best way, or one of the best ways, to deal with JDD, a joy deficit disorder, is through gratitude and being thankful. In chapter 4 of Philippians, you're familiar with this verse. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The Philippian Christians had every reason to be anxious and to suffer from joy deficit disorder. They were facing persecution from those outside the church. They were deeply concerned for Paul who was in prison and they struggled with internal conflict. You could say that almost in every way they could just turn and run into a bucket of anxiety. Now notice what Paul does not do. Paul does not tell them to deny their struggles, their pain, and their suffering. A definition of joy that would tell you that you'll never struggle is not anchored in Christ. In the life of faith, we never deny the reality of pain. We just go to that deep place of joy because we know that redemption is coming. We know that something better is coming. And this deepens our prayer life. It allows us to take everything by prayer and petition with gratitude in advance, trusting the way God is going to work 
in the situation. We, and we recognize with gratitude that everything good that we have in life comes from Him. Every breath you take, every good, kind, and loving, life-giving relationship you have, every morsel of food you eat, all of these things are, a gift, are gifts from God who loves you and who cares for you. Gratitude is the posture of the heart that makes joy accessible. Let me say that again. Gratitude is the posture of the heart that makes joy accessible. You show me somebody who can't go to a place of gratitude, and I'll show you somebody who has not and is not living in the joy of the Lord. When my kids were in elementary school, I noticed one day when Alexander came home, he had uh, an unusual pep in his step and smile on his face. And so I saw him come in, and, and uh, I immediately went to, uh, the, into the Dr. Phil routine and trying to analyze. It was a Friday, and, and I said to Alex, I said, so you look really happy today. Uh, did you get a good grade? And he shook his head, and no. I said, well, did you make a new friend at recess? He said, No. I said, was the food in the cafeteria passable today for you know, maybe once out of ten times? And he said no. And he looked at me and started to frown. And, and, and you could just tell that, that, that he was trying to tell me I was ruining his, his moment. And he simply looked at me and he said, Dad, I'm a kid. It's Friday. I don't have to go to school till Monday. It just makes me happy. I thought, well, his version of thank God it's Friday. My prayer for each one of us is that we would learn from the kids in our lives and in our world. Let's submit our joy deficit disorder to the Lord and allow him to fill us with his deep gladness and his deep joy that in Christ Jesus all will be right. Even in a season like this, you can find it when you consider the scope of eternity, when you consider what it means to be a servant to Jesus, when you consider what it means to have a heart filled with gratitude. People of God, rejoice in the Lord. Let me say it again. Rejoice. Let's pray together. God, oh my goodness, God, we just come to you this morning and we take incredible comfort knowing that indeed you are a God of joy and you are a God of deep gladness. Yes, God, we recognize that you grieve over our sin and you grieve over the pain and the suffering and the brokenness that's in our world right now. But we know this is temporary because we know, God, in faith, you are working to make all things new, that you're working to make all things right. And that eternity is going to be filled, God, with just incredible joy. And eternity is going to be that incredible experience where we get to walk with you constantly for eternity in joyful, glad, unbroken communion. Lord, until then, help us to hang on. Until then, help us to remember that in you all things are going to be well. And help us to go to that place of deep, joy, even when chaos and pain and suffering may be all around us. Lord, help us to learn from 
our kids. Help us to learn to be grateful for the simple things, pots and pans to play with on the floor. Whatever that looks like for all of us, God. We pray that you would draw your joy into us. Lord, we know that you promise us that joy is indeed a product of the Spirit at work. And so we're going to trust you this week to draw your joy into our lives. Lord, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, the joy bringer of heaven, we pray. Amen.